0: So John chapter 12, we started this chapter last week, and so we're picking it up here in verse 12 of John chapter 12, and we look at this wonderful account of the triumphal entry. It's not Palm Sunday, but here we are as we go through God's Word, verse by verse, chapter to chapter, we come upon Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry here in John 12. It's an account that's recorded in all of the Gospels, which reveals to us its significance. Last week, you heard me say how... The event we were looking at last week was recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel, but this one is recorded in all the gospels. There weren't a lot of, uh, of things that were recorded in, in all four of the gospels. John kind of took a bit of a different path in the things that he was talking about and writing about and revealing, but this is, is an important event in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and that's what we're looking at here today. It says in verse 12 of John 12, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Let me just stop right there. We'll get into that later here. But it's been an eventful couple days in the life of Jesus, and among the people around Jerusalem, as people have been gathering together, congregating in Jerusalem now for the upcoming Feast of Passover. This was a very huge and eventful day in the lives of the Jewish people, both nationally, historically, spiritually, religiously, all these things. This was a very exciting time for the Jews here. Some estimates say that the city, because of all the pilgrims coming in to celebrate the feast, this was one of the three main feasts that, that all you know, Jewish males were required to come and celebrate. And so many were coming with their families. And so some estimates say that the city would swell to over 2 million in population during this time. So as you read here that, you know, the great multitude had come to the feast. I mean, it's a great multitude, Packing into Jerusalem here, this this incredible crowd. At at such a time, there was, you know, census that were given historically that would count the number of sheep that were being brought in or the lambs for sacrifice for the Passover feast. And and one census showed that the number was 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed. And there had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb. And so that estimate is correct. It means that there would have been You know, over two million people here to celebrate the Passover feast. And so it's just a great occasion that's going on. And it's just a few days away now, this Passover that's coming. It tells us that it's the next day, the next day. That would be the day after Jesus had been visiting at the home of Simon where Lazarus was, who had just recently been raised from the dead, Lazarus' sisters Martha and Mary there, it's where Mary came and anointed Jesus with this lavish display of affection and devotion, and Jesus said that she's done that for his burial, so it was like a way that Jesus was being prepared for what was to come in just a few days away now, even though Mary didn't fully comprehend the significance of what she was doing as she poured this expensive oil upon Jesus, So it's the next day from that. So we go from this intimate, quiet gathering in a home one day to this raucous crowd gathering for the feast the next day. Now what's interesting is that... um, As this is approaching the feast of Passover, John Corson had suggested that it was the 10th day of Nisan. And that's significant, it's important, because as he goes on to say, it was the day when every family celebrating Passover would choose a lamb to sacrifice. Then priests would watch it closely from the 10th to the 14th day of Nisan in order to ensure it was in the best of health and was without flaw or blemish. Picture in your mind's eye tens of thousands of lambs being brought into the holy city. And in the midst of all the choosing, inspecting, and bleeding, the Lamb of God comes and enters into the city. In a way, of putting himself on display to say, look at me, inspect me, see if there is any fault within me here. Jesus' entire life has been leading up to this time when he would come and surrender his life as this sacrificial lamb of God, this great Passover lamb that would come and do this significant work for us in bringing deliverance and forgiveness of sin, just as that first Passover was a remembrance of the deliverance the people of Israel experienced out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery, how they were set free and redeemed. And so here now Jesus comes to do the greater work, this spiritual work of redeeming us, forgiving us, delivering us from our sin. So as Jesus comes now and he's Approaching the city of Jerusalem, the crowds, the multitude, a great multitude, it says in verse 12, are gathered together as he approaches the city, words getting out that he's coming, right? There's there's been a lot of buzz about Jesus and the things that he's done. I mean, he's just raised somebody back to life right? That's, that's huge. And so people are at this point realizing that they're not just dealing with some kind of phony. This isn't some guy that's just been doing some illusions like, how did he break that bread and make it multiply? Oh man, he must have had a loaf somewhere that he's just, you know, trickery, sleight of hand. There's some of it. No, they're realizing now he's just raised somebody back from life and we're able to see Lazarus, talk to Lazarus and know that people gathered on the tomb saw the seal, that the tomb sealed. And Lazarus uh, uh, emerged in all his grave clothes. I mean, they've witnessed this. They know we're not dealing with just a phony, some charlatan, some illusionist. This is the real deal now. And there's a great buzz and excitement and anticipation growing around Jesus. So what do the crowds do? They come and they gather palm branches. They begin waving them as Jesus made his way down the Mount of Olives, as he made that, that entry down into Jerusalem. And like I said, here's that first Palm Sunday. And why it's called Palm Sunday? They're waving these palm branches. Now, why would they take palm branches? You think that's kind of odd. Why waving the palm branches? Well, palm branches were used to show your patriotism. The people were were excited about what was going on. It was a symbol of Jewish nationalism since the time of the Maccabees and the the great revolt that was led by Judas Maccabeus in in overcoming some of their enemies. So this began to be identified with this Jewish nationalism and and, and excitement for the work of God. The people here, they're expecting big things from Jesus, right? So this became a big rallying cry for the people as they're waving palm branches, like, this is it. This is our man. This is our guy that's going to lead us on into the glory days. They've got their, you know, make Israel great again hats on. They're excited for what's coming. There's great anticipation here over Jesus Christ. Passover, in fact, always brought with it an anticipation of a deliverer coming on the scene. The Jews would oftentimes get worked up in a frenzy during the Passover thinking, this is it. This is the time. If any time there's going to be a time when our Messiah Our promise is going to come. It's got to be during the Passover because it all pointed to the great deliverance of God. This has got to be the time. So the Jewish people oftentimes kind of were working themselves in a frenzy, but it also caused the Romans and the guards to really be on high alert during this time, worried that there would be some kind of rebellion taking place. So this is what's kind of at work right now as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem at this triumphal entry. So the crowds are mounting Palm leaves are being waved. That people are thinking, we've got our our political, our, our national leader here now. They saw Jesus as their savior, but it wouldn't go down the way that they were expecting. The way that they were hoping. Notice what they were crying out. It says there that they were all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. See, when we hear that, we think of some great lyrics to a worship song. We sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. We're like, all right, Hillsong, you nailed it, right? And we're singing out, you know, Hosanna. We, we use these terms in worship before the Lord. And it's true, those are great words. But for the people in this day, that term Hosanna meant something maybe a little bit differently than we think of it as. They were singing out Hosanna in the terms of save now. That's what it meant, save now. In other words, they're looking at Jesus to meet an immediate need See, their desire was for Jesus to come and be that political leader, that, that political messiah that would just throw off the Roman oppression, that he would just come in and wipe you know, this Roman empire away and, and usher Israel into becoming an independent nation again, establishing the throne of David once more. That's how they saw the messiah. Like, this is it. He's the guy. He's raising the dead back to life. He's done incredible signs. This is our messiah, this is the guy. Get ready, Israel. This is what we've been waiting for. And so this is what they're expecting. Save now. Hosanna. This is the day that you're going to do this work, Lord. This is it. We're ready. And in saying these words, Hosanna, save now, they're quoting from Psalm 118. In fact, they've got scripture behind them. They're kind of going, this is what has already been prophesied. Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26. And this is known as a very messianic psalm. It says there, In Psalm 118, I put the wrong verse up there. It's verse 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so they're singing out this psalm. And they're attributing Jesus now as being the one fulfilling this messianic psalm. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're it, Jesus. You're the one. Now, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, knew exactly what they were saying, what they were doing, and what they were insinuating, and the Pharisees didn't like it, because they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, what are the Pharisees trying to do right now? They're trying to kill Jesus. So they don't like what's being said right now, and in fact, they're trying to rebuke Jesus for allowing this. It says in Luke 19, verse 39 to 40, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher! Rebuke your disciples Why? Because they're singing this out And they go, this doesn't fit, this isn't you It's not about you, no, you gotta rebuke them you can't, They can't be tying that passage to you But what did Jesus say? He said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent The stones would immediately cry out Oh man, I can't stop this So many are receiving Jesus As their Messiah And it's important to note that this is the first time that Jesus allowed this public praise of him and this public acknowledgement that he was the Messiah, the promised one. Remember that Jesus had been kind of you know, laying low or removing himself from situations that might cause people to speed this process up a little bit. Remember just after the feeding of the 5,000, we read there in John 6, 15, therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. John 7, 6, then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. You see, as we have been establishing through the gospel of John, Jesus has been operating on a very divine timetable. He's been operating by God's schedule and not his own. Not man's schedule, but God's schedule. And God has this appointed day for Jesus to come and reveal himself as the Messiah. If it happened any time sooner, if it happened by the will of man, well, this would have fast-forwarded things and prevented Jesus from carrying out his ministry in a greater way, right? Jesus didn't come this first time just to come and be seated on a throne, he came to establish his rule and reign in the hearts of man. He came to do a spiritual work of saving people. But now, now it was time for Jesus to step into a greater, a greater spotlight here. Now it was time for Jesus to come and carry out the work that he came to do in going to the cross. And it was a time that had been clearly prophesied long before this time. See, we go back to Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27, where we read of an amazing prophecy. And you've heard me talk about this, I'm sure. If you're new, maybe this will be new to you. And and, and this is an incredible passage of scripture that just, again, reveals the, the, the order, the sovereignty of God here, that reveals that he's at work behind the scenes, leading all things along according to His plan, because it's in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24 to 27, that we read of the 70-week prophecy. We read that 70 weeks or 70 groups of seven years was determined for Israel. And from the time of of the decree, it tells us, to go and build and restore Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, would come, there would be 69 weeks, which equals 483 years. 69 groups of seven years equals 483 years, then using the Babylonian calendar, it would make it 173,880 days, all right? So that, the amazing thing is, this is exactly the amount of days it was from that decree that Nehemiah, chapter 2, I believe it is, speaks about, where that decree went forth for people that were in exile in Babylon to go and return to Jerusalem and start to rebuild the city, from that day that that went forth, which was March 14th, 445 B.C., until Jesus came riding in Jerusalem, being proclaimed publicly for the first time as the Messiah, was 173,880 days. It brought us right to April 6th, 32 A.D. This very day that we're looking at here in John 12. In other words, it's God's word fulfilled exactly to the day. That's why, isn't it wonderful how good God's word is to know that I mean, God is orchestrating all things according to his time and his plan. Even when you look and hear about things that are just unfolding in in a sense in in chaos in the world. And it is because we live in a fallen world, yet God is still at work, carrying out his plans and purposes. And so Jesus could say, my time has not yet come because there was a specific day, a day appointed by God where all this would go down. This time that had been established and prophesied long before Jesus even came to this world. See, everything was being carried out exactly and perfectly. So much so that people should have been able, if they were people of the word of God, should have been able to start to see and recognize, well, hold on a second. We're being led up to this time where the Messiah has got to come. If what God said in Daniel 9 is true, which we have no reason to doubt because his word is always true, Then we're we're being led right up to this time. They should have been ready. Remember how Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, it says that Jesus wept over the city. And he said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, it's almost as if Jesus held them accountable, especially in this your day. Jesus is looking at them saying, You should have known this day, and yet, they had not been tracking, they had not been looking, they, they had been dismissing the work of God. By and large, these religious leaders who should have been people of the word, who were the ones trying to uphold the word to the letter of the law, to the very fine, finitest, minute, I don't know if I'm making up words here, but just minutest of, of, of ways trying to uphold the word, and yet, they were missing some of the bigger parts of the word, and they should have known it, and, and it's as if Jesus is holding them accountable. If you had known this, what was happening in this, your day. Going back to that Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. Verse 25 tells us how, it says, save now, send prosperity. blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. But verse 24, the verse just before that, says what? This is the day that the Lord has made. Pointing ahead to that triumphal entry, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, the day that God's purposes and plans are coming to fruition, the day that his word is being fulfilled, the day that he brings the Messiah to the masses. And the crowds are rejoicing because they're thinking, ah, this is the day that we're finally gonna get what we want. Our king, our Messiah, our independence." Our freedom from Rome. This is a day that we've been desiring and wanting. But what they want may not exactly be what they need. You see, how often do we cry out, Hosanna, save now, Lord. Do it now. I need this. And Lord, I need it now. Do it now, Lord. Don't hold up. I know you're a God of long suffering and patience, but I'm not so much that way. So, Lord, do it now. Do this right now and we get impatient. We want to rush ahead. We want to move forward in our plans instead of waiting on the Lord's plans. We live, we live in a world that's just been conditioned for immediate results, fast-paced action, and hopefully little wait. See, the crowds were looking to prepare the throne, polish the crown. They were ready to install Jesus as their king right then and there. This is, this is it. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah, so let's just make it happen, Lord. Let's go. We'll take you right where you need to be, Jesus. This crowd that came to greet Jesus was pumped, but their hope was in what they were gonna get personally and presently from Jesus at that moment. I'm sure there are times that we want God to do something for us and to do it now. Some might think that as they accept Christ. Oh, well, if I... If I give my life to Jesus, well, then he's going to bless me. He's going to bless me financially. He'll do a miracle in my life. He'll heal me of this need. He's going to make me successful or popular. And they accept him for what they want him to do for themselves. And just because he's done all that for me doesn't mean he's going to do it for you. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't. I'm still praying for these myself. But Lord, whenever you need to. See, these crowds were all in at this moment of expectation, but in just a few days, what's gonna happen? Many that are a part of this crowd now are gonna see that Jesus isn't gonna do what they were hoping he would do. That he's not gonna do the things that they were wanting him to do or in the way that they wanted it done. Many are going from Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord, to to just in a few days, saying, crucify him. They're ready to abandon him when things don't unfold the way that they want it to unfold. It's a sad thing when people turn away from Jesus because he didn't meet their needs in the way that they wanted him to do so. But as we see here, Jesus was coming to do a greater work. A greater work. He wasn't coming just to be the king of Israel as they were proclaiming. He was coming to save the whole world. And that he would do by dying on a cross, paying the penalty for their sin, taking their wrath and the judgment of God so that we would be spared, so that by faith in Jesus, we could be forgiven of our sin and brought into right relationship and fellowship with God and experience eternal life in him. That's the greater work. That's what Jesus came to do. And if he was ushered in just as as king right then and there, well then, that wouldn't have accomplished the greater work that Jesus came to do. We might still find ourselves at times calling out with a similar attitude, Hosanna, save now, do this thing for me now, Jesus. But remember, his ways are not always our ways. And our desires, our requests, aren't always the most beneficial So we trust the Lord. And if Jesus never does anything else for me from this day forward, you've heard me say this many times, but if he never does anything else for me from this day forward, he's already done all he needs to for me because he saved me. He's given me life in him, a future and a hope. I know where I'm going when I die. I have peace, security in him. I have eternal life. So if Jesus never did another thing for me, he's done enough for me already. I'm good. Now I'm thankful that God doesn't do that, that we're called to come and bring our our requests and our needs to him. But what we have to understand is that as we come and we bring our requests and our needs to him, we say, Lord, your will be done. Oh, this is my need, but Lord, help me to align with your will and your heart in these things. Because I oftentimes get off of that. I go away from that, Lord. So I want to stay in line with what you have for me So help me to walk by faith in what you're doing, Lord. Don't be quick to turn away like these crowds were when they saw that Jesus wasn't gonna do what they were hoping he would do. Remain in him regardless because it's only in him that you will find life. It's only in him that you will have peace. It's only in him that you are strengthened and find comfort. It's only in him that you will find your deepest need met and that is salvation and life. Well moving on here verse 14 it says this, then Jesus when he had found a young donkey sat on it as it is written fear not, daughter Zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Now I'm sure one time or another you've all kind of wondered like me Why did Jesus come riding in on a donkey? And not just a donkey, but it says, uh, sitting on a donkey's colt. In other words, it's a baby donkey. Why, Jesus, would you come on a donkey? I mean, you're the Messiah. This is your moment. This is the day right now where you were announcing, I'm here, I'm the Messiah. I mean, shouldn't you be coming on a white stallion, coming on a chariot, coming being carried? I don't know, something but a donkey? You ever wondered that? You kind of think that's, that's odd. But here's the thing. A donkey wasn't an unusual mode of transportation. It wasn't even an unusual mode of transportation for kings. You see, when a king came riding in on a donkey, it meant they were coming in peace. But when a king would come riding on a horse, it meant batten down the hatches. There's trouble brewing. They're coming to conquer. They're coming in to take over. So Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, he comes bringing peace. And it says, as a scripture, as it is written, fear not, from Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine, fear not, O daughter of Zion. That's a reference, daughter of Zion is a reference to the Jewish people. And it's also a quote from Zechariah 9, 9, which says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Isaiah, fear not, don't worry. He's coming in riding gently, lowly, humbly on a donkey, bringing salvation. He's just. He's not coming and just wiping you out. He's coming with justice and salvation. He's coming in peace. He's coming to offer you the greatest need that you'll ever have. Forgiveness of sin, life in Him. People had nothing to fear. He's coming to set you free and bring you peace. And this is also fittingly pictured in how he came. It tells us in Luke 19 30 that no one had ever sat on this donkey. The other gospel accounts, they they give us some more information about how when they're the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, you know, to some of his disciples, go into the city opposite you. And there you'll find, you know, uh, when you walk in that city, a a donkey tied there. Take it, you know. And the disciples are like, what do you mean take it? I I think this is maybe breaking one of those Ten Commandments here. Like, I can't be doing that. The Lord just said, listen, if anybody asks you, just tell them the Lord has need of it. And so they went. They went in the city just as Jesus had said. And they found a donkey and they brought it to Jesus. And so Luke 19.30 tells us that it's a donkey that no one had ever ridden. In other words, this donkey's been untrained, hasn't been broken. Have you ever gotten on an animal like that has never been ridden before? Ever done that? No, because that would be crazy, right? That's not the thing to do. I remember even myself just, um, you know, I was a, a counselor at Timberline Ranch one year. It's where my wife and I met, and we were 16 years old, and and. Uh, the end of camp, anybody been at Timberline Ranch, whether as a kid or any, anything like that? Okay. And so Timberline Ranch, at the end of, the, of camp week, they would do a little rodeo, right? And the kids would participate. Well, they had at the beginning of the rodeo where, you know, a couple of us would come riding in as like bandits. We'd take something, right? And we'd get chased. Well, listen, I, I was picked for one of these guys. And I'm a city guy, right? I'm not... I'm not accustomed to be around horses. I don't know. I was out of my element. What did I? What was I doing working in Timberline Ranch? Completely out of my element. But I'm called upon to ride on one of these, you know, ponies, right? And I'm just like, and we're to go racing out fast, like we're taking something and we're getting out of there. And so I'm just like riding on this thing. I like got this thing in a bear hug. I'm probably choking the poor animal. <laughs> riding along, I'm just like hanging on. I'm like freaking out, you know. I'm like, get me off this thing as quick as possible. I mean, it is not enjoyable, right? And I'm walking different for the next week after that. It just wasn't pleasant, you know? And it's hard, but, but let alone riding on something that's never been ridden, it would not be a very enjoyable ride. Yet, yet, when Jesus sits down on this unbroken, untrained animal, comes riding in gently, smoothly, the very Lord of all, showing this submission now by this animal here to the very one that made it to begin with. What an interesting picture here. And I think, how often are we experiencing a bumpy ride? Uh, a bit of a, a, a chaotic kind of encounter. Oftentimes, we go through needless trials or turmoil because we're not allowing Jesus just to have that place in our lives. Or we're not coming in submission to Jesus and allowing him to lead us. Remember when Paul, you know, when he's making his way to to Damascus to wipe out Christians, right? Jesus met with him there on the road to Damascus. And what did Jesus say to him there in Acts? He says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's what, what Paul was experiencing. He's trying to go his way and the Lord's trying to bring him into submission. And yet as Paul is kicking and trying to get away, He said, kicking against the goats, it's making it more uncomfortable for him. I think that's oftentimes the way it goes for us, is when we're not seeking to follow the Lord and give him his proper place in our lives as Lord, overall, and allow him to lead us. We're we're kicking against the goats, we're enjoying, or we're encountering a, a troublesome, tumultuous journey. And yet it can be so much smoother when we come and we say, Lord, I want to just come in submission to you. I want to lay my life down before you. I want you to be the one that's leading me and not the other way around. And when we do that, we experience that peaceful ride, a gentle ride, as it was for Jesus coming in gently, riding on a donkey here. What a great picture that is. Now, I want you to think of the contrast on this whole scene in comparison to what the Romans would typically encounter with a triumphal entry, right? I mean, this was something that the Romans were very familiar with, but it went down very differently than what we're reading about here with Jesus. Now, Warren Wiersbe said this about the Roman triumphal entry. Whenever a Roman general was victorious on foreign soil, killing at least 5,000 of the enemy and gaining new territory, he was given a Roman triumph when he returned to the city. It was the Roman equivalent of the American ticker tape parade, only with much more splendor. The victor would be permitted to display the trophies he had won and the enemy leaders he had captured. The parade ended at the arena where some of the captives entertained the people by fighting wild beasts. Compared to a Roman triumph, our Lord's entry into Jerusalem was nothing. Nothing like this. Jesus' triumphal entry was not quite like this kind, but understand, it was a triumph nonetheless. Why? Because he was God's anointed king. He was the savior now for the whole world. His conquest was of a spiritual nature, not a military one. A Roman general had to kill at least 5,000 soldiers to merit a triumph. And in just a few, in just a short time after the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ impacted 5,000 people and transformed their lives, according to Acts chapter 4. Jesus' triumph was a victory of life over death. His was a great triumph. He accomplished much, but he did it in a a spiritual way. But there's coming a day when we're gonna see the real triumphal entry of Christ because he is coming back again. At his first coming, he came to do that work spiritually in our hearts. The second coming of Christ, he's gonna come and do this work in a physical way way when he is going to come and wipe out the armies that are fighting against him it tells us in revelation 19 that jesus is going to come back again and he's going to be upon that white horse with us at his side remember that 70 week prophecy in daniel 9 we talked about earlier well remember it's 69 weeks from the decree that goes forth to rebuild jerusalem until the coming of the messiah in other words there's one week that we haven't dealt with or one group of seven years That's the tribulation period. Where again, that prophecy is directed to Israel. It's during the tribulation where God begins to direct his focus on Israel again. We're living in the church age right now. By his grace, all people are coming to salvation. But during the tribulation, the church will be gone. He will begin to intervene with Israel once again. And he's gonna come back and bring an end to all those walking, rebellion against God and fighting against his people Israel. And that will be a triumphal entry when he will usher in his kingdom and establish that throne of David once again where he will reign and rule physically here on this earth for a 1,000 years where there'll be this peace of God as he's intended all along. It's amazing. I mean, that's, that's part of eternity. It's gonna be glorious to be a part of that. I'm excited about it. But understand, he is coming in a triumphal entry coming to a theater near you soon. I pray very soon. Well, look at verse 16. I love this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. It's it's interesting that those that were the closest to Jesus still had a very hard time comprehending comprehending what was really going on in Jesus' life. See, as much as Jesus tried to prepare them, they just didn't get it, right? Everything Jesus did, everything that he said, they're like going, oh, well, that's cool, but what's that all about? They weren't getting it. And so now, after Jesus, when he died, when he rose again, suddenly all these things, now the disciples, it came, like, they, didn't, they didn't even comprehend what Jesus was gonna do, that he was gonna rise again. But then it says, when Jesus was glorified, then they understood. And so they're like, oh, now I get it. And she's like, oh my God, rolling his eyes. Like, yeah, it took you long enough. I've been hiding this from you. But notice, when did they when did this really kick in? When did the understanding happen? When did they remember these things? When Jesus was glorified. You see. If you wanna have a greater understanding of who Jesus is and you wanna know him in a more intimate way, seek to glorify him. It's when we surrender our glory and seek for his glory to be manifested in our lives that we'll be growing in greater understanding of who Jesus is and his plans that work in our lives. So often, we don't understand what's happening in our lives or when things come up, we're like, no, this isn't what I wanted to happen. This isn't the way it's supposed to go down. And we fight, we get discouraged. We're wondering what's happening. But you know what? When we live our lives to say, Jesus, you be glorified in my life. It's not about me. It's not about my will. It's about yours, Lord. Be glorified in my life. Suddenly, when things begin to take shape, we're like, oh, yeah, I see what God's doing. This is about him. This is what he wants to do for his maximum glory. And when you're living your life for his glory, Man, that's the avenue that you're gonna be walking in greater peace and joy. Because you're fulfilling what you were created to do, and that is to bring glory to Him. Our lives are lived for His pleasure, for His glory. And when you fulfill that, you're gonna have a, a greater understanding and peace in the things that you go through. Well, let's wrap this up here, verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So the Pharisees, they're almost like beside themselves here as this scene is unfolding. They're looking around, throwing their arms in the air and defeat thinking there's nothing they could do to to carry out their plans of killing Jesus. Jesus. In their eyes, the whole world was coming to Jesus. But little did they know that those who would really stick with Jesus were very few. Many of the people put on a a display of worship and loyalty, but their hearts were not willing to follow Jesus all the way. When they began to see that things weren't getting done how they wanted, they walked away. In fact, Jesus will go on to say in the next few verses that will be covered next week, He says in verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Are you quick to follow the sentiments of the crowd? Are you quick to go along with just the flow of what's happening? Or are you saying, no, I'm not following a crowd, I'm following Jesus. And I'm following Jesus to the point where I am laying my life down for him, ready to go all the way. In just a few days, Jesus is going to go to the cross where he would lay his life down. And many abandoned him thinking, this isn't what our Messiah, our leader, our king, that doesn't fit. It's because they weren't willing to lay their lives down and follow Jesus and to go all the way with him. I pray that we're at that point in our lives where we're saying, Jesus, I'm all in. I don't want to follow the crowd. I don't want to do what the world does. I want, to, I want to do what you called me to do. I want to follow you wholeheartedly. You've come and you entered in Jerusalem that Palm Sunday to establish your rule and reign in my heart, in your heart. Have we allowed her to take up that place of the throne of our hearts to be our king, to be our Lord and our savior? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and we're gonna close with just a time of of worship and ministry and prayer. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've been experiencing in your life just sort of turmoil, trouble, and just a lack of peace. Well, understand, Jesus came to deliver peace for you and that peace comes through the forgiveness of sin. To be made right with God through faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know that truth. I encourage you. Call out to Jesus today. All it takes is you. Saying and acknowledging your sin. That you're a sinner. And you need a savior. You want Jesus to come in. And be your Lord and your savior. And to lead your life. The Bible says that when you do that. You become born again. You become part of the family of God. And you inherit eternal life. And that comes through putting your trust in Jesus. I encourage you to do so. There's a couple points to ponder here. Just in closing, the triumphal entry reminds us of the fulfillment of scripture. All that God says comes to fruition. We can count on it. Secondly, the triumphal entry reminds us that Jesus comes gently. The choice is yours to accept him. Are you experiencing that peace in your life? Thirdly, the triumphal entry reminds us that when Jesus is glorified, things become that much more clear to us. May we seek his glory in and through our lives. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you came to do an incredible work for us in dying on the cross to save us and forgive us of our sin. And you rose again, showing that we have life in you now, life eternally. And we thank you for that, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we're demanding you do a work in our way. Help us to rest in you and to trust you and to say, Lord, your will be done in my life. Help me just to live in a way that just brings glory to you in all circumstances and situations as we seek to give you full reign and rule in our lives. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.